Hey guys, Jim Cox, FFG Advisors, Park Avenue Securities, and I'm here today with something a little bit different. Um, if I had one person that I would love to talk to on my podcast, and especially these days, it would be a man by the name of William O. Douglas. William Douglas was uh, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court from 1939, I think, until 1980. He was probably one of the most liberal justices to sit on the court. Um, Just a staunch advocate for civil rights, for individual rights, and... Um, so what I thought I would share, given the uh, age that we're in, is actually one of his books, um, which the book is called Points of Rebellion, and this is going to be a podcast in three parts, because basically it's divided into three sections. Points of Rebellion was published in 1970 first chapter is called How America Views Dissent. The continuing episodes of protest and dissent in the United States have their basis in the First Amendment of the Constitution, a great safety valve that is lacking in most other nations of the world. The First Amendment creates a sanctuary around the citizen's beliefs, his ideas, his conscience, His convictions are his own concern, not the government's. After after an American has been in a totalitarian country for several months, he is greatly relieved when he reaches home. He feels that bonds have been released and that he is free. He can speak above a whisper, and he walks relaxed and unguarded as though he were no longer being followed. After a recent trip, I said to a neighbor, it's wonderful to be back in a nation where even a riot may be tolerated. All dissenters are protected by the First Amendment. A communist can be prosecuted for actions against society, but not for expressing his views as to what the world order should be. Although television and radio time, as well as newspaper space, is available to the affluent members of this society to disseminate their views, most people cannot afford that space. Hence, the means of protest and the customary manner of dissent in America from the days of the American Revolution has been pamphleteering. Other methods of expression, however, are also protected by the First Amendment, from picketing to marching on city streets, to walking to the state capitol or to Congress, to assembling in parks and the like. It was historically the practices of state police to use such labels as breach of the peace or disorderly conduct to break up groups of minorities who were protesting in these unorthodox ways. The real crime of the dissenters was that they were out of favor with the establishment, and breach of the peace or disorderly conduct was merely a cloak 
to conceal the true nature of the prosecution. In 1931, the Supreme Court, in an opinion Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes held, the First Amendment was applicable to the states by reason of due process clause of the 14th Amendment. That clause provides that no state shall deny any person liberty without due process. The Hughes Court held that the right of dissent, protest, and march for that purpose was within the purview of the First Amendment. Breach of the peace and disorderly conduct could therefore no longer be used as an excuse for the prosecution of minorities. Parades, of course, can be regulated to avoid traffic problems and to allow for easy access to public offices by other people. Pickets may be regulated as to the numbers and the times and the places, but the basic right of public protest may not be abridged. While violence is not protected by the Constitution, lawful conduct such as marching and picketing often boils over into unlawful conduct because people are emotional not rational beings. So are the police, and very often they arrest the wrong people. For the police are, the arm of, are an arm of the establishment and view protesters with suspicion. Yet American protesters need not be submissive. A speaker who resists arrest is acting as a free man. The police do not have carte blanche to interfere with his freedom. They do not have license to arrest at will or silence people at will. This is one of the many instances showing how the Constitution was designed to keep government off the backs of the people. Our constitutional right to protest allows us more freedom than most other peoples in the world enjoy. Yet the stresses and strains in our system have become so great and the dissent so violent and continuous that a great sense of insecurity has possessed much of the country. This insecurity reflects international as well as local worries and concerns. At the international level, we have become virtually paranoid. The world is filled with dangerous people. Every troublemaker across the globe is a communist. Our obsession is in part the product of the fear generated by Joseph McCarthy. Indeed, a Black silence of fear possesses the nation and is causing us to jettison some of our libertarian traditions. Truman nurtured that fear. Johnson promoted it, preaching the doctrine that the people of the world want what we have and, unless suppressed, will take it from us. That fear has made us all military experts. We all know what missiles to keep and what troop deployments to make, what overseas wars to search out and join. Military strategy has indeed become dominant in our thinking, and the dominance of the military attitude has had a sad effect at home. Domestic issues also have aroused people as seldom before. The release of the blacks from the residual institutions of slavery has filled many white communities with fear and the backlash has had profound political consequences. The affluent society with its marketing mechanisms and its vivid television commercials have whetted the appetites of the poorest of the poor for the good things of the material world and spreading awareness of the impoverished conditions of humanity across the globe and the needless deprivations of the masses 
has stirred even the illiterates to action. There have always been grievances, and youth has always been the agitator. Why, then, is today different? Why does dissent loom so ominously? Some attribute the current regime of dissent to provocateurs inspired by foreign interests. The Soviets are accused by some, Peking is blamed by others, yet there can be no doubt that the ideas of revolution have long been loose in the world. The concepts behind our revolution in 1776 spread overseas and greatly bothered more people than those who wore crowns. The French Revolution of 1789 and its ideas of liberty and equality and the right to resist oppressions shook up the establishment of that age. The Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, August 26, 1789, became the creed of several European nations. The theories of Marx and Lenin had an even greater world impact because of the rival of the age of communications. And the Maoist Chinese, with their very special competence in propaganda, have greatly exploited the weaknesses both in developing nations and in affluent societies. But the fact that communists may have provoked some to the present dissent in the United States is not, as some would have it, the end of the matter. The voices are not communist, for those in rebellion see communism as an even more vicious form of the status quo. The merits must be voted up or voted down. For there is no doubt that the elements of discord in our lives reveal major issues that are causing a serious domestic dislocation. Forces too numerous to catalog have produced a decade of protests that in many ways is unique. It come, Number one, it comes during a time of prolonged affluence, not of depression. Number two, it is not ideological in its orientation, but is essentially activist. And number three, it is led by young people who, though not unanimous in tactics or in, in objectives, have given these protests a revolutionary tone. The goal of the revolution is not to destroy the regime of technology, it is to make the existing system more human, to make the machine subservient to man, to allow for the flowering of a society where all idiosyncrasies of man can be honored and respected. Older people are not receptive to these protests, nor do they understand them. The older generation might well have resisted all change in any case, but they are doomed to resist because of the conditioning that they have experienced over the last few decades. I speak near now of two forces working to that end. First is the growing subservience of man to the machine. Man has come to realize that if he is to have material success, he must honor the folklore of the corporation state, respect its desires, and walk to the measure of its thinking. The interests of the corporation state are to convert all the riches of the earth into dollars. Its techniques, fashioned mainly on Madison Avenue and followed in Washington, D.C., 
are to produce climates of conformity that make any competing idea practically un-American. The older generation has, in the main, become mindless when it comes to criticism of the system. For it, perpetuation of the corporation, state, and its glorification represent the true Americanism. Quote, if only the world were like us, everything would be perfect, end quote. The second force which is shaping resistance to change is the way in which our First Amendment traditions have been watered down or discarded altogether. The First Amendment was designed so as to permit a flowering of man and his idiosyncrasies, but we have greatly diluted it. Although the amendment says that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech and press, this has been construed to mean that Congress may make some laws that abridge the, that freedom. The courts have written some astonishing decisions in that area, and here are a few examples. A person may not be punished for believing a so-called noxious or communist doctrine, but he may be punished for being an active advocate of that ideology. A person may not be prosecuted for reading or teaching Karl Marx, but he may be sent to prison for conspiring with others to conduct classes or seminars on the Marxist creed. A person may be convicted for making a speech or pamphleteering if a judge rules ex post facto that the speaker or publisher created a clear and present danger that his forbidden or revolutionary thesis would be accepted by at least some of the audience. A person may be convicted of publishing a book if the highest court in time decides that book has no socially redeeming value. In these and in many other respects, we have fostered a climate of conformity. In O'Henry Junior High School, Austin, Texas, some 13-year-old boys were threatened with expulsion for getting out of getting out a home mimeographed paper calling for an end to the compulsory daily prayers over the public address system, which practice is, of course, contrary to the court's ruling in Engel versus Vitali, 370 U.S. 421. One boy was actually called an atheist and a communist because he maintained that the requirement of compulsory prayers was teaching the pupils to break the law of the land. <coughs> Throughout the country, the climate within our public schools has been against the full flowering of the First Amendment traditions. The great rewards are in the establishment and in the work, of the work for the establishment. While the establishment welcomes innovative genius at the scientific level, provided it can get the patent and lock, up, lock it up against competitive use, <coughs> it does not welcome dissent on the great racial, ideological, and social issues that face our people. Our colleges and universities reflect primarily the interests of the establishment and the status quo. Heavy infiltration of CIA funds has stilled critical thought in some areas. The use of Pentagon funds for classified research has developed enclaves within our universities for favored professors, 
excluding research participation by students. The Pentagon now has, for example, contracts with 48 universities for research on how to make birds useful in aerial photography, gunnery, steering of missiles, detection of mines, and search and destroy operations. The University of California has been up to its ears in research on nuclear explosives with huge grants from the Atomic Energy Commission. MIT and Johns Hopkins, in terms of dollar volume of their contracts, have been among the hundred major military aerospace corporations. Stanford, Columbia, and Michigan have been rich with defense contracts, and so the list grows. Only revolutionary-minded facilities would provide a curriculum relevant to either domestic or foreign political problems. Very few faculty members have a revolutionary fervor or insight. Our private universities are self-perpetuating. As Kenneth Galbraith has said, the trustees are drawn from such a narrow spectrum of social and political opinion as to make them insensitive to issues of the real world. Even their faculties are subordinate to the orthodoxy of the trustees and the students have little voice in the affairs that vitally affect their interests. For example, much of modern education fills young, tender minds with information that is utterly irrelevant to modern problems of the, of the nation and to critical condi conditions of the world. Students rightfully protest, and while all of their complaints do not have merit, they too should be heard as a right and not compelled to resort to violence to obtain a hearing. The university a symbol of the establishment, is used to having its way in the community. Its pressure is commonly applied to black areas. As it, it is needs to expand, black tenements provide an easy target. The university action that triggers a violent reaction from the black community may also be, be of that of a different kind. Morningside Park in New York City has been a rather rugged green belt against Columbia University in Harlem. It was indeed one of Harlem's few escapes to shade, playground, and recreation. When Columbia started to build its gymnasium there, many of us in the conservation field were up in arms. But none of us had the personal stake in that piece of woods that the people of Harlem had. And it was they who rebelled and joined the ominous confrontation at Columbia. But the case against the university is that it is chiefly, chiefly a handmaiden of the state and of industry, or worse yet, of the military-industrial complex. In this connection, Dr. Robert, Robert Hutchins recently stated, quote, It seems probable that we are entering a post-industrial age in which the issue is not how to produce or even distribute goods, but how to live human lives not how to strengthen and enrich the nation-state, but how to make the world a decent habitation for mankind. The cause of the present unrest among students are, of course, very complicated, but one of them is a feeling among young people that contemporary institutions, and particularly the university, cannot in their present form deal 
with the dangers and the opportunities of the coming age. The dangers are obvious enough, and the opportunities, though less often referred to, are equally great. The chance is there to have what Julian Huxley has called the Fulfillment Society, and what others have called the Learning Society, or simply a human society. We have no very clear conception of what such a society would be like, but we have all learned from 1984 and Brave New World what some other possibilities are. End quote. When the university does not sit apart, critical of industry, the Pentagon, or government, there is no affirmative force at work in our society. The university becomes a collection of technicians in a service station trying to turn out better technocrats for the technological society. Then all voices become a chorus supporting the status quo. There is no challenger from the opposition warning of dangers to come. The result is a form of goose-stepping, and the installation of conformity is king. Such has been the increasing tendency in this country for the last quarter century. Our search, our search for ideological stray through loyalty and security hearings has vastly accelerated our trend towards conformity. Anyone who works for the federal or any other state government must run a gauntlet. Everyone who works for contractors or subcontractors on defense work must also be cleared. We have run at least 20 million people through those security hearings since Truman established the test in 1947. The casualties have been staggering in the past, and they continue to mount. People have been disqualified for governmental work, particularly during the McCarthy days, because they a. opposed our support of the French in Vietnam, b. attended a social gathering sponsored by a group that turned out to be quote, subversive, B, C, predicted the fall of Chiang Kai-shek in China and the victory of the communists. The hearings seldom dealt with overt acts against the United States. They probed thoughts, attitudes, and beliefs. At various times, a man was suspect or even or often suspended if he believed in the UN, if he thought schools should be segregated, if he thought Peking should be admitted to the UN. Our loyalty and security boards developed many badges that marked subversive employee or one who was a poor security risk. Do you own Paul, Paul Robeson records? Do you own any works by Picasso or Matisse? Did you vote for Henry Wallace? Have you ever studied the Russian language? Thousands lost their jobs because of these, tri because of these trivia. Others were suspended and turned into the outer darkness because of their membership in organizations deemed subversive. The organization may or may not have communist members. The employees' association with it may have only nominal or been nominal or fleeting. I remember one file of an honored Negro in the Seattle community who lost his job because he recently, or he innocently, attended a coffee hour of one such organization. Membership of the Communist Party was, of course, fatal, even though those memberships, at least in the early years, were often not knowing, so 
associations with the aim of overthrowing the government. Apart from the improper use of data, which are highly subjective and not subject to refutation by the victim, there are some data that are of no concern of the government. All branch of the, branches of the government are bound by the Bill of Rights. It is of no concern to the government that a person believes what he thinks, what philosophy he embraces, what church do you belong to, are you an atheist? What are your views on the United Nations? These and like inquiries are irrelevant. A man's belief is his own. He is the keeper of his conscience. Big Brother has no rightful concern in these areas. There never was an end to these investigations. Hearings followed hearings as each succeeding administrator hoped to trap an employee, label him as subversive, and add to the administrator's popular image. This shabby business was illustrated by the pursuit of John Patton Davies, our foremost China expert in the 40s and 50s. He was cleared by eight loyalty security boards. Then in 1954, he was tried the ninth time and dismissed from foreign service by John Foster Dulles. In 1968, he was tried for a tenth time, and this time given a security clearance. In the 60s, employees were still being screened for associations with so-called communist front organizations. Not especially present associations, but associations dating way back to the past when friendship with Russia welded in World War II was considered a, nat a national virtue. In the 60s, even association with the Civil Liberties Union was considered by some hearing officers a badge of poor security risk. These hearings had a powerful leveling effect. They indeed have resulted in a bureaucracy more staid, more conservative, and more timid than a nation can afford in a revolutionary world. The growing dossier of people in employment files and in security files have been Parallel phenomenon, age, income, place of birth, education, are innocuous points of information, but much of the data in present personnel files is highly subjective. Is the applicant reliable, cooperative, stable, loyal, or subversive? Has been asked by former teachers, associates, and employers. These answers may reflect an emotional rift between the applicant and the person being interviewed. The latter may be rightist, uh, the applicant leftist. The answer may reflect an old grudge or a casual episode that has no present significance. Yet the applicant has no chance to see the report, to challenge it, and to have it corrected. The data collected on an applicant may reflect one youthful transgression that never was repeated. One private group keeping tabs on people who Join demonstrations or march in protest has files covering five million or more available for a fee. An ominous trend is the increasing FBI activity on present day college and university campuses. They put under complete surveillance a member or leader of Students of Democratic Society Group, SDS, monitoring every minute of months of his life. The following message from an educator with
administrative responsibilities on the Atlantic seaboard tells the story in a nutshell, though the FBI will deny it. <coughs> Quote, I want to reiterate my concern about the activities of the FBI on college campuses. Your help in stopping what most Americans would consider to be an invasion of privacy and the beginnings of a police state is solicited. In addition to the usual investigative procedures for security clearances in criminal cases, the FBI has been conducting field checks on individual students and faculty members who are suspected of being members of activist groups. What it has come to mean is that any faculty member or student who speaks out or attends meetings of such groups as SDS is apt to be investigated. It is not unusual for the FBI to plant a student in such groups as SDS and reimburse the student for his information. Furthermore, leaders of these organizations are placed under a system of national surveillance. These spy activities have also moved to other levels of police activity. At other local state police barracks, for example, there are files including pictures of members of SDS. I include myself among those who consider SDS to be among the most harmful force of on American campuses. I am willing to concede the possibility that there may, at a national level, be individuals who are solely interested in the destruction of our way of life. I am not willing, however, to say that we must sacrifice personal liberties to rid ourselves of these cancers. In the past, I have made college records freely available to investigating officers who presented proper credentials, and I have cooperated, cooperated in these investigations. On reflection, in the light of these above developments, I propose to withdraw my, myself and this institution from such cooperation, except in instances of security clearances for government positions, when the individual understands he is subject to scrutiny, and in investigations of specific criminal cases." End quote. One so-called fact usually collected is, were you ever arrested? While an arrest seems definite enough, it is often an oppressive act aimed at a minority. Arrests for breach of peace are often cloaks for the arrest of people promoting unpopular ideas. Those arrests are therefore unconstitutional, since the states are subject to the First Amendment as a result of the Due Process Clause of the 14th. Moreover, an arrest may be followed by an acquittal, or the case may be of the, against the accused may be dismissed. Yet there are very few jurisdictions in the United States that provide procedures for erasing arrests. There is, moreover, no established procedure for giving an applicant a hearing on his arrest before they could be fed into the computer and become cold, authentic facts. Charles Luce, when head of the Bonneville Dam Authority, approved personality tests, including choices such as these. I go to church each week, and I believe in the second coming of Christ. The latter would have obviously penalized a Jew or a Muslim. <clears throat> Answer. A, I would like to accomplish something of great significance. B, I like to kiss attractive persons of the opposite sex. A, 
I like to praise someone I admire. B, I like to be regarded as f physically attractive to those of the opposite sex. A, I like to keep my things neat and orderly on my desk and workspace. B, I like to be in <coughs> love with someone of the opposite sex. A number of federal agencies also use personality tests. One included the following choices. My father was a good man. I am very seldom troubled by constipation. My sex life is satisfactory. Evil spirits possess me at times, and at times I feel like swearing. I have at very peculiar and I have had very peculiar and strange experiences. I have never been in trouble because of my sex behavior. During one period when I was younger, I was engaged in petty thievery. My sleep is fitful and disturbed. I do not always tell the truth. As a youngster, I was suspended from school. Everything is turning out just like the prophets of the Bible said it would. <coughs> the experts are at odds about the personality tests. These tests commonly grade a person by 8, 9, or 10 traits, while 25,000 traits might approximate an accurate personality portrayal. Moreover, the creator of the test fashions his own neurotic world, as for example, to daydream is neurotic. This thesis is that this the thesis that is present in one personality test. <coughs> a premise of another personality test is that belief in God is normal, but being very religious is bad. Some psychiatrists affirm that excessive religiosity may be a simple symptom of mental illness. <coughs> the most famous of these personality tests, known as MMPI, was originally designed to sort out the mentally ill. Yet some administrators have used it not for that purpose, but to determine who should be hired. MMPI has been defended by some as experimentally derived. Its defenders say that an item counts not because some clinician thought it would be significant, but because in well-diagnosed groups of maladjusted and mentally ill people, <coughs> those being interviewed answered the item with an average frequency differing from the average frequency of the normative group. They point out that the item, I go to church almost every week, is counted on a scale for estimating the amount of time, estimating the amount of a person's depression. Those who were depressed answered true with a frequency of only 20%, while the normals answered true with a frequency of 42%. So those who composed the MMPI test said that a false answer to this item was a count on the depression scale, although they have no idea as to why depressed people were apt to say that they would go to church less often than so-called normal people. The search for the mentally ill is well organized. So are the psychologists who clamor for a permanent place in the screening and selection of employers, employees. <coughs> and they are not resisted because the trend to conformity has made laymen less and less critical 
of these massive inroads on their privacy. <coughs> Industry uses the personality test to weed out those who are individualistic and assertive and to find those who tend to conform and, and who will therefore fit into the social climate of the industry. A drive is on now to spot potential student protesters before they are admitted to college. A preliminary report indicates that a student is likely to be a troublemaker if he has no religious preference, if he is politically liberal rather than conservative, if he is interested in artistic pursuits and rates himself high in originality, and if he comes from a well-educated and affluent home. Personality testing is held in awe by many people because of its scales around so many, so definitely scientific and sound, because its scales sound so definitely scientific and certain. Psychopathic deviates, hypnomania, schizophrenics, and so on. The psychiatrists join forces as they work on the periphery of what is normal and what and are interested in people who show pathology. <coughs> if used, these tests should only cover cases which observation, interviews, and case histories suggest are marginal. If given at all, they should be administered only by eminently qualified people, and the data collected should never enter the personal file. The reason is plain. Someone's label, schizophrenic, neurotic, etc., can give a person a lifetime brand, ruinous to their career, though the label may have been improperly attached to begin with. Even if it was valid at one time, the condition may have been completely cleared up, but a computer does not know any of these things. Ideological data, like personal personality data, is treacherous when fed into a computer. For by its use, the loyalty and security board's failure or refusal to clear a person becomes virtually incontestable fact. All one has to do now is to press the sub subversive button and all the names of dangerous people come tumbling out. The computer has now taken the place alongside the A-bomb to mark two phenomenal revolutions in a generation. With electronics, an idea can now be transmitted around the world in one-seventh of a second. And so the recurring question is, what ideas will be disseminated? If they concern people, how will people be evaluated? Big Brother, in the form of an increasing, increasingly powerful government, and in an increasingly powerful private sector will pile the records high with reasons why privacy should give way to national security, law and order, to efficiency of operations, to scientific advancement, and to the like. The cause of privacy will be won or lost essentially in legislative halls and in constitutional assemblies. If it is one, this pluralistic society of ours will experience a spiritual renewal. If it is lost, we, have, we will have written our own prescription for mediocrity and conformity. The tendency of these mounting invasions of privacy is the creation, 
creation of a creeping conformity that makes us timid in our thinking at a time when problems which envelop us demand bold and adventuresome attitudes. Electronic surveillance, as well as old-fashioned wiretapping, has brought Big Brother closer to everyone and has produced a a like-leveling effect. In 1968, Congress made wiretapping and electronic surveillance lawful, provided it was done with a warrant, as provided in the case, as provided in the Fourth Amendment, issued by a judge on a showing of probable cause that certain specified crimes had been or were being committed, exempted altogether from any supervision were national security cases where the president was given large authority to proceed against suspected spies and subversives. But the administration soon broadened the category to include domestic groups who attempt to use unlawful means to attack the existing structure of government. The Wall Street Journal sounded the alarm that such broad surveillance could lead to the harassment of lawful dissenters. And the New York Times, in reply to the claim that presidential power extends to surveillance of groups which threaten the government, observed that they that, that was the theory behind the oppressive search warrants authorized by George III, and they were the reason we got the Fourth Amendment. The FBI and the CIA are the most notorious offenders, but lesser lights also participate. Every phone in every federal and state agency is suspect. Every conference room in government buildings is assumed to be bugged. Every embassy phone is an open transmitter. Certain hotels in Washington have allotments of rooms that are wired for sound or even contain two-way mirrors that, so that the occupants can be taped or filmed. It is safe to assume that in the federal capital, as well as in each state capital, there is no such thing as secret classified information. The leveling effect of the numerous influences I have discussed is appalling. The tense and perilous times in which we live demand an invigorating dialogue. Yet we seem largely incapable of conducting one because of the growing rightist tendencies in the nation that demand conformity or else. We are inhibited when we should be unrestrained. We are hesitant when we should be bold. We are not enough It is not enough to be anti-communist. We need the irrepressible urge to rejoin the human race. We need to contribute moral and political leadership as well as technical and financial help to rebuilding the new world order controlled by law rather than by force. This, in summary, is the mood in which America has viewed the forces of real revolution that have been sweeping the nation. But what about the forces of dissent? There are many facets to that problem, but they all lead, I think, to what has been called the diminished man. There is more knowledge and information than ever before. The experts have so multiplied 
that man has a new sense of impotence. Man is indeed about to be delivered over to them. Man is about to be an automaton. He is identifiable only in the computer. As a person of worth and creativity, as a being with infinite potential, he retreats and battles the forces that make him inhuman. The descent we witness is a reaffirmation in the faith of man. It is protest against living under rules and prejudices and attitudes that produce the extremes of wealth and poverty and that make us dedicated to the destruction of people through arms, bombs, and gases, and that prepare us to think alike and be submissive objects for the regime of the computer. One young man wrote me his dissent in a poem. Humans exist only to consume. We, the living, have entered a tomb. Machines are this world's best. So humans are purchased to do the rest. The dissent we witness in a protest against the belittling of man, against his debasement, against a society that makes lawful the exploitation of humans. This period of dissent, based on belief in man, will indeed be our great renaissance. End of chapter one. Again, this is a reading from Points of Rebellion by William O. Douglas, um, published 1970. Very relevant even today. Thanks for listening.